Hello, you're listening to The Culture Bore, and I'm Susan Gordon. This is the podcast where I stumble into the wilds of contemporary culture, my pockets empty, and my shoes unsuitable for the terrain. But I keep going, meandering and thinking until I find my way, and coming out the other side a little bit richer. This week, I'm in a wild wood as soon as I open my eyes. It's early, not too early. After six, I suppose, I don't know exactly. My head is on the pillow, my feet warm under a duvet. I look to the windows and a thin beam around the blinds admitting a glimpse of the world outside. My only expectation is that the day begins, but it is not yet light and the expectation is discarded. The day does not begin after all. When it does, it bears every hallmark of October. There are cashmere cardigans in the most expensive shops, Christmas decorations and tubs of sweets in the cheapest. The environment's in transit, as it always is, light and energy continually adjusting. I think of dials turning on the radio. October is a sudden crackle on the waves. We know every season, remember them in our bones. These sensations are inscribed on a body. It's a chilly wind in April. It is thirst in July. The weight of heavy boots in November. We know the seasons like we know old friends. A shifting season can still surprise, but it was not that seasonal trick, the withholding of light, that surprised me. It was the relief that accompanied darkness and the suspension of the day. Light has personality. It fosters a mood or ambience. What's less obvious is that the availability or quality of light doesn't just create a mood. It codifies behaviour. Compare a candle to strip lighting to a desk lamp. Each gives us permission to exist in one way and not another. A bookshop should not be too bright. A wealth of information, the weight of shelves and hardbacks, needs a slightly shadowy enclave. I should have space to rest, even hide here. Now imagine hot lamps swinging from the ceiling, glaring at every surface, the lights of a commercial kitchen. Suddenly it's not okay to browse, to tilt one's heads at the shelves and spines. There's a shopping centre not far from where I live, and being in it, even for a few minutes, is depressing. When I look up, then back down the concourse, I realise that it exists in a perpetual half-light. Someone is monitoring the electricity bill, perhaps in a gloom of their own, but ultimately they want to keep shoppers moving. They don't want visitors to pick a bench and sit for a while. They'd rather you hurried through, buy what you need as quickly as possible, then get out. What's depressing is an assumption that the presence of people here is undesirable. In a brightly lit shopping centre like Westfield, the assumptions are a bit different. An average supermarket is dimly lit, an all-encompassing grage. It's more forgivable because they've got a lot of stock and a lot of staff to fit within four walls. They don't want shoppers to hang around and stress the limits further. A dim light is not always discouraging. We have dimmer switches and table lamps in our homes and bedrooms. In a private space, the reasons for subdued lighting are very different, and a positive emotional response reflects that. I start to think about our efforts to filter, control and limit the strongest of light sources, the sun. We think of filtering light as a modern phenomenon. A photographer adjusts the aperture on their camera. Images are filtered. Yet stained glass is also the filtering of light, this elaborate, time-intensive process ongoing since the 7th century. 
George Harrison's Here Comes the Sun is so uplifting, and its charm so immediate, it seems the sun can be welcomed without reserve. Yet a music video released by the Beatles in 2019 reveals a certain resonance about portraying it. It carefully avoids any real depiction of the sun, and is only shown figuratively in drawings or as a glowing collage. A deep pink illuminates the neck of a guitar. The sun itself is never seen. In song lyrics, the sun does not always signify joy. The warmth of the sun by the Beach Boys is a mournful ballad. The house of the rising sun laments the life in tatters. In these songs, the sun's a metaphor in a situation laced with regret. I wonder if the controlling, pervasive power of the sun was anathema to the free spirits who wrote and performed this music. I become curious about how visual artists have treated the sun and look to those who concentrated on the sky. Canaletto's paintings of Venice are almost photographically faithful. The skies are blue, the sun itself always out of sight. J.M.W. Tanner shows the sun, but it's usually shielded by clouds, veiled by atmosphere, as in his 1825 watercolour, Sunrise. When the sun is bald in the sky, it accompanies a kind of death. The fighting Temeraire, tugged to her last birth to be broken up, 1838, features in the Bond film Skyfall. It always makes me feel a little melancholy, Q says, seated alongside Bond in the National Gallery, and Turner's masterpiece before them. Grand old warship being ignominiously hauled away to scrap. The inevitability of time, don't you think? From the 1940s, René Magritte painted a number of works collectively known as the Empire of Light, or alternatively, the Dominion of Light. Across 16 oil paintings and 10 gouaches, we see a daytime sky above a nocturnal landscape. In these peaceful, sombre works, there are lots of white clouds. The sun is absent. The Hereafter, another work by Magritte, depicts a glowing, singular orb high in the atmosphere, but the only other features are a barren desert and a tombstone. When I step back in time again to Vincent van Gogh, I find the sun in its naked yellow glare. I find it in the Soa. I find it in Pollard's at Sunset, both completed in 1888. And I find it in the Reaper series, the three paintings finished the following year. These paintings belong to the last two years of his life, a period dominated by mental illness and hospital stays. Pollard's at sunset is stark and unrelenting. The artist himself acknowledged that the reaper was death. My first inkling was that the sun, with its potentially oppressive power, deterred artists rewarded for painting idols, for producing work which was appealing, and work that was beautiful. Van Gogh, being seriously ill, was, we can guess, free of some social expectations. Yet painters have always shown us other symbols of oppressive force, from the violence of Caravaggio's Bible scenes to a deliberately stiff 18th century studio portrait. They have not been afraid to challenge us. Even the steady gaze of a Rembrandt self-portrait challenges us. I wonder if the sun is simply uninteresting for a painter. The unvarying radioactive furnace of the sun is fierce, but also rather bland, characterless. A realistic depiction may add nothing. An unrealistic depiction invite ridicule or bafflement. In 1910, a Japanese painter and sculptor, Takamura Kotaro, achieved some notoriety with A Green Sun, 
a short essay and manifesto. Its first line is, people become stuck in an unexpectedly insignificant place and suffer. After four years in Paris, London and New York, he was frustrated by what we might today call the conversation. He acknowledges the imprint of nationality, of place of origin on an artist, but he refuses to be defined by it. I'd like the artist to forget his Japanese, he says. It's a searching and plain speaking piece, a statement without direction. It is, he writes, my thoughts in their confused state. A green sun made it famous. He writes, even if someone paints a green sun, I will not say it is wrong. This is because there may be a time when the sun looks that way to me too. The good or bad of the painting has nothing to do with whether the sun is green or flaming scarlet. Even if I see a green sun, I do not feel offended. For Kataro, an attempt to grant the sun some new quality, to reimagine it, is a risk that threatens to destabilise the whole work. Only a conscious mediation prevents this, and this demands maturity. A green sun symbolises an unmooring of an artist and a viewer. An artist choosing to unmoor may be misguided. It may be the intentional effort of a pioneer. In 1949, Joan Miro painted Woman in Front of the Sun. Central to the frame is an orange-red and irregular sphere. In 1957, a commission from UNESCO led to a pair of murals, the Wall of the Moon and the Wall of the Sun. In the latter, a crimson sun, flaming scarlet, as Gotaro put it, spills across the brickwork. Miro drew inspiration from found materials, from the natural world, from poetry. Early in his career, he said he was using reality as a point of departure, never as a stopping place. To see Miro's work is to feel unmoored, the ground shifting beneath one's feet. It can be disquieting, uncomfortable. For Miro, born in Barcelona and raised in Catalan, a notable influence was surrealism. Today, when we use the word surreal, it may denote a slightly whimsical work. It may be Tim Burton's surreal, work that's spooky but audience-friendly. The surrealists of the 1920s were not audience-friendly. Their work was aggressive, masculine, weird, and their voices loud. They printed magazines, published manifestos, they argued. They looked for images in their dreams, tried to unearth their subconscious. The result was often blatantly sexual imagery. The works of Hans Arp, Max Ernst, Oscar Dominguez, even Dali, can be exhausting. This was a macho world buffeted by civil war. Miro's four years in Paris were four years in exile. When he's quoted talking about turning hunger-induced hallucinations into his work, you can almost hear the boasting. In 1927, he declared, I want to assassinate painting. In common with the Surrealists, some of Miro's work from this decade is troubling. In Harlequin's Carnival, 1924, Lines are a solid, undiluted black, directionless yet swaying. They make me think of spiders. Shapes are splayed or weaponized, ending in dagger points. The animals are victims. Miro's work benefits from a unique intensity. The artist, who counted Picasso and Ernest Hemingway as early buyers of his work, also swerves away from some of the excesses of the Surrealists. Bathing Woman, 1925, has a deep, satisfying simplicity. The canvas is a cool blue, yet there's a genuine warmth in its composition. 
Dog barking at the moon, 1926, shines with its sparing refinement. Ten years later, he designed the cover of the official Surrealist literary journal, The Minotaur, so he's seen an association with the Surrealist Titan. But Miro maintained his own path. His paintings are two-dimensional renderings with a limited colour palette. It suits the theme of space, and that final frontier is a theme he returns to in 1940 with Constellation, the Morning Star. In the 60s and 70s, his sculptures are distinctly alien. The round, full-bellied figure, 1970, has an inspired B-movie energy. Insect Woman, 1968, and Constellation, 1971, could have been taken from the Star Trek studios. Mira's work is full of life, but not as we know it. Space can be a site of destruction. It can be lifeless. At other times, it's just unknowable. It is held together by this unfathomed dark matter. The sun will always keep us at a distance. It may be that this enforced distance makes it unpopular in paintings, when being close to the subject, getting under its skin, is so essential for the artist. Today we're not talking about space exploration or space travel, we're talking about space tourism. And to be a tourist has mixed implications. If we're tourists and not visitors, experience is felt at a distance, vision limited to the exteriors, when the search for authenticity means a willingness to engage at a deeper level. To be a tourist is temporary, when authenticity implies some kind of permanence, or at least consistency. Space is remote and inherently dangerous. Authenticity is fostered by proximity and safety. To be inspired by space and still achieve the authenticity of an original song, painting or sculpture is truly remarkable. Thank you for listening and please do join me next time as we go into the woods with the culture bar.